So we're going to be doing our lesson in Acts chapter 11, where uh, Paul read in the scripture reading. And as we've been looking at portraits of Jesus' dominion in Acts 8 through 12, which encompasses the spread of the gospel throughout Judea and all of Samaria, and then now reaching a bit farther north to Antioch, we've seen a lot of specific examples of people who uh, were examples of Jesus' dominion and the way that they responded to the gospel. We've seen people like Simon the Sorcerer, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Saul's conversion, who will later become uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, and already in Acts 11, um, working as an apostle evangelistically. Um, and we'll see in Acts 12, uh, the conversion, well, not the conversion, but the freedom of Peter from, from prison when Herod puts him in prison. So we've seen a lot of intimate snapshots, but this is one of the most intimate snapshots we get of this, the growing of a church community outside of Jerusalem. The church in Antioch becomes really important in the overall narrative of the book of Acts, and that what's on the map here, the little red arrows, is Paul's first preaching trip. Uh, some call it his missionary journey. Uh, that always starts in Antioch, and then he ends up back in Antioch at the end of his trip. Just to kind of show that really quick, you don't need to necessarily read all of this, but in Acts 14, that records when they come back to Antioch after his first trip is over. And then they begin to go out again for his second trip shortly after that. Acts 18, this is at the end of his second preaching trip. And he, again, he comes back to Antioch and then goes back around. And eventually, after the end of this third trip, he will go to Jerusalem or he'll be put in prison uh, in Acts chapter uh, 21. So the church in Antioch, uh, we're going to read the text again. And the structure of the sermon is going to be a little bit different and that instead of kind of walking through the narrative and then making applications at the end, I'm going to read the narrative and then uh, immediately start making applications from points we see about the church here. But I do want to say um, a word to Miguel in Spanish. Um, so if you'll be patient with a moment while I do that. Uh, en el capítulo, uh, there's Miguel. Okay, I want to look at Miguel as I'm talking. <laughs> en el capítulo 11 de los hechos, versículos 19 a 30, Vemos el comienzo uh, de la iglesia en Anti Antioquia. Esta iglesia era muy importante, ya que esta iglesia envió el apóstol Pablo en sus viajes de predicción por todo el mundo. La iglesia en Antioquia, en Antioquia también modela muchas cualidades de una iglesia saludable uh, que estudiamos esta mañana. Uh, so with that, we're going to read Acts 11, 19, and read through the end of the chapter with the church here, and we'll make some points about the church after we're done with the reading. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, 
he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So the church here in Antioch is really a culmination of everything we've seen in the book of Acts up to this point. That there would have been a Jewish population here in Antioch, but also a Gentile population. As you see in verse 20, Some came from Cyprus and Cyrene, also speaking to the Greeks, and they were also preaching the Lord Jesus. And we'll talk about in a moment how this seems like this would have been a very large church numerically. And we'll talk again about that here in just a moment. Um, But you would have had a great conglomeration, both of Jews and Greeks, living in unity within this church, really as an extension of what we saw in Acts chapter 10 through 11 verse 18, where the gates of the kingdom were open to the Gentiles to someone named Cornelius in Caesarea. And you notice in verse 20, there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch. Uh, Let me see on the map here. Cyprus, you notice, is on the west. It's an island to the west. Cyrene is actually really far northwest, uh, further west even than Egypt. So people were coming from a great distance, land and sea, to get to Antioch to preach the gospel there. Uh, So we would have had a lot of Christians from a lot of different places with a lot of different backgrounds all coming together in unity here at this church. And then with this being the church that started to send out Paul on his preaching trips, this becomes one of the most significant churches that we read about in the book of Acts here. Two of the figures we see here of significance are Barnabas first and then also Saul. Do you remember where Barnabas was first mentioned? Back in chapter 4, in chapter 4, verse 36, you remember Barnabas' name originally was Joseph, but he was so encouraging that the apostles named him son of encouragement in verse 36. He owned a tract of land, which would have been very significant in Jerusalem, since land would have been inherited by your forefathers religiously. He sold that and brought it to the apostles' feet. And we see him again in chapter 11 here, going up to the church in uh, Antioch, sent from Jerusalem. Um, Barnabas was a man also described in verse 24 in an interesting way. Have you ever thought about somebody who is very encouraging or very devoted to God as being full of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever described someone in that way? Uh, I haven't. What might it mean about Barnabas, that it could be said about him, he was full of the Holy Spirit? It's at least safe to say that he was fully devoted to the Lord, that he was living his life with spiritual priorities, spiritual desires, spiritual interests, that his life inwardly and outwardly was fully committed to the interests of the gospel, and he was full of faith. So Barnabas wasn't somebody who was self-dependent or prideful, but serving the Lord with humility, again, with spiritual priorities that would fully align with the gospel. So not only do they have Barnabas here and others who are traveling and sacrificing and go and teach, but Barnabas goes to Tarsus, which would have been some distance because of what's happening, he even finds Saul and brings him over to Antioch as well, and they teach considerable numbers. 
want you to look at chapter 13, verse 1 really quick. And look at how many teachers either were already at Antioch or would eventually come to Antioch here fairly shortly. By the time we get back to Antioch in chapter 13, this is when Saul is about to be sent out. And mind you, Saul's name hasn't been changed to Paul yet, but this is the Apostle Paul. It says, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, what, that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas, that's one. And Simeon, who is called Niger, that's two. And Lucius of Cyrene, that's three. And Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, that's four. And Saul, that's five. Have you ever seen a local church with five people dedicated to full-time teaching? The closest I can think of is there's a church in Atlanta, Embry Hills. I think they consistently have like three full-time teachers there, two or three. Uh, It's a church of about 400 to 500 people. Antioch had five full-time teachers there. And this may not include some of the others from chapter 11, verse uh, 19 and 20, who had traveled some distance to teach about Jesus as well. The idea is this, Antioch, by every implication, was very large, meaning there were a lot of Christians in Antioch. But again, the impression is this church was very healthy. It was a very large church, but it was a very healthy church. Historically, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, I don't quite know what that means in terms of overall numerical population, but I would imagine with Rome being a very dominant uh, power in the world at this time, that that would mean that it was one of the more heavily populated, dense cities that existed in the world in this time. So there would have been a very large city here, with a lot of people from that city who are obeying the gospel becoming a very large and very healthy church. Why is this important to note? I don't know if maybe this is how you think, but when I was younger, um, there was this kind of belief in my mind that it's not possible for a large church to be a healthy or sound church. That once you get to a certain size, you kind of have to have the wisdom to split off, start a new church because... Once the church is too large numerically, it can no longer be properly managed in terms of leadership, and so it gets to a certain size, it can no longer remain sound. Uh, I'm not sure where that idea came from. That might just be something someone said that got planted in my mind that stayed there. Uh, But I've visited many large churches that are very healthy. I've also visited small churches that are healthy with few people. I've visited large churches that are not healthy. They're not sound but I've also visited small churches that are not healthy and they are not sound. So I would argue it's not the number of people that determines whether or not a church can be healthy. It's the leadership. It's the nature of the the teaching. It's the culture being developed by the faith of the individuals and the commitment of the individuals in that church. What do you get as far as an impression of the culture of the church in Antioch? the leadership in Antioch, the teaching that was happening in Antioch, men like Barnabas and Saul, and then these others mentioned in Acts chapter 13, and then others who came from Cyrene, which would have been miles and miles away beyond the borders of Egypt, traveling all the way up to Antioch to teach the gospel. What kind of culture do you think was developed by the commitment of the people who are a part of that local church? 
So again, it's not the number of people that determines a church's health, but rather it's the leadership, it's the teaching, it's the culture that's being developed here as well. More doesn't necessarily mean better, but also small does not necessarily mean better as well. This is kind of awkward to bring up, um, but in terms of this church being large in big part because of the evangelistic efforts happening there, people banging the gospel, I realize this is very awkward to bring up. And what I'm about to say, the church here is extremely encouraging. I love the church here. But you will never hear me say, and you have never heard me say, I like the fact that this church is small. You'll never hear me say that. Because in a sense, it's not good, and I don't like the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people in Savannah who are lost and are who are going to hell, who are going to hell. I don't like the fact that there's a need for more teaching here, more workers here. And I don't like the fact that there are burdens here that are so heavy and there are so few people who can put their hands into those burdens to help deal with those burdens. That doesn't mean that the conditions here are discouraging. It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, I find that actually to be very motivating in the church here. Um, But I think we have to be careful that we don't think it's better that the church here is small or rather even that it's better that we would be bigger. We just have to deal with the church as it is and share God's priorities. Now imagine you're in Antioch. If you are a part of the church there, another thing that I think is important to think about is this church is so large. Could you get lost in the crowd among the Christians in Antioch? If you were a man, for instance, and you really wanted to participate in leadership at assemblies, Do you think you'd be able to do that in Antioch every week? That you'd be able to have a role leading in the assembly every week? Probably not. Does that mean that your role in Antioch would not be valuable? Does that mean it's not very important that you're there? Our goal is to serve people. And where there are people, there are needs. Where there are people, there's a need for service. It's challenging to go somewhere and feel like if it's a larger church. I don't know everybody. I'm not able to be as involved in assemblies and in the leadership. But again, I don't think participation in assemblies is ultimately the culmination of our service to Christ or the brethren. That can't encompass our value and our place in a local church. So, you know, let's say like the Maxwells moving to Trenton, being a part of a bigger church. You know, the Maxwell's place at that church wouldn't be less if there's less ability to be involved at the local assembly in moving to a larger church from a smaller church. My dad said it this way. This is um, a FaceTime conversation I was having with my dad, so I'm kind of um, interpreting what he said. I can't remember what he said word for word, so this is more the idea of what he was saying. But we were just having a FaceTime call one-on-one, and we were just talking about um, spiritual things and My dad said something that has really uh, stuck with me. He said, the goal of a child of God, the goal of a child of God is to serve to the uttermost and as an ambition in the end, to be unrecognized and even to be forgotten. And I'll say that again. The goal of a child of God is to serve to the uttermost and in the end, to be unrecognized, and to even be forgotten. And he followed that up saying, the world cannot understand or share that ambition because that's something unique to the gospel. 
So if in Antioch you got lost in the crowd, so what? If in a larger church you get lost in the crowd, so what? If a lot of people move here all of a sudden, and if God's providence causes multitudes of people to just, I don't know, over the years, many turn to the Lord in this community, and this church becomes a much larger group, does it mean that your role, if you are here through all of that, would be less valuable and less important because you may get lost in the crowd a bit more than right now? Would that mean your role would be less important? Antioch was a very large church, yet a very healthy church, because people were just serving. They were serving individually. They were serving the needs of individuals. And people weren't looking for glory or thinking it was important to be recognized, to be noticed, or to be seen as somebody of importance. They were just imitating the character of Jesus and his humility, fulfilling the roles as it was needed. And so it was very large, yet it was a very, very healthy church. A church can be large, but be healthy. Antioch was a church of disciples devoted to the Lord. Uh, I want you to notice how emphasized this is. Uh, It's actually emphasized five times in a very short period of verses. Uh, The end of verse 20. What were they preaching? They were preaching the Lord Jesus. In verse 21, what or who are they turning to? To the Lord. In verse 23, Barnabas was was exhorting them, encouraging them to remain true to the Lord. And in verse 24, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. At the end of verse 26, they were called Christians. They weren't calling themselves Christians. They were called Christians, seemingly by the community at Antioch. Not Christian Jews, not a new form of Judaism, not a new sect of Judaism. These people were distinctly followers of Christ. They were called Christians. They were devoted to the Lord in practice. Their teaching, their preaching was about the Lord, and the community around them could recognize these were followers of Christ. Thus, they were called Christians in that community. Why is that significant? I want you to think, how do you measure or define your relationship to God? Are you Church of Christ? Is it that you've been raised in the church? Is it that you've been a part of the church for a number of years? Or do you measure the quality of your relationship with God in direct relationship to the Lord. That you are not Church of Christ, but a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. That your salvation began by turning to the Lord, living for the Lord, applying the teaching of the Lord. And there's a personal aspect to this that cultivates a kind of allegiance to Jesus that is not possible if we're thinking differently about what it means to serve God. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3 to kind of clarify the the significance of this principle. As we go to Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 10, kind of modeled in Paul, and I think what he would have modeled in, in Antioch with his example and his teaching, how he would have exhorted the Christians there, is that thinking about our relationship to God is, is directly being to the Lord. We are trying to follow the Lord and know the Lord. There's a sensitivity that creates toward the Lord and a kind of sacrifice that that encourages. Sensitivity and sacrifice, unique to thinking more personally about our devotion to Jesus. 
Look at Paul's example of this in 7 through 10. And, and just like Antioch, try to pay attention to not only how focused he is on the Lord, but the impact that's had on him to think in that way. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. How focused was Paul on the Lord? And again, with this idea of sensitivity and sacrifice, thinking about the Lord more personally makes us sensitive to his wishes and ambitions. We're sensitive to what, what pleases the Lord. What kind of impact are my thoughts and decisions having on the Lord? Our goal is to think like Jesus. Our goal is to share Jesus' values, his priorities. Our goal is to share the joy that Jesus had. We want to share his perspective, his compassion towards people. We want to see people, talk to people, interact with people, treat people in a way that is parallel to Jesus. We want to share Jesus' hatred towards sin while sharing his love for righteousness. We want to see God and we want to serve him exactly and as precisely as Jesus did. We are not just wanting to serve God systematically, not just wanting to serve God according to a certain set of doctrine and teachings. We want the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the priorities of Christ. That makes the difference between a culture at Antioch that is thriving and a culture that can lose its first love in the process as Ephesus, as Ephesus ended up in that context in Revelation chapter 2. So the question that I know is kind of ambiguous. Is your devotion to the Lord? Are you trying to think more like Jesus every day? Are you trying to interact with people in a way that is measured like Jesus? Does it cross your mind to think, how would Jesus have handled that conversation? Does it ever cross your mind, how would Jesus handle my work environment? How can my work ethic more align with Jesus? How can I just talk and act around people in a way that is more reflective of Jesus? Are those kinds of things priorities and thoughts that you try to meditate on every day? That was the condition of the church in Antioch. And with being focused on the Lord, the disciples were focused on the grace of God. Back to Acts chapter 11, there's kind of an unusual statement in verse 23 that Barnabas arrived and he saw something. And he saw something that, again, I don't know if I would ever put it in these terms, and, and it challenges me to, to more think in these terms. He witnessed the grace of God. How do you witness the grace of God among brethren or in a local church? You know, and I don't know if I've ever walked away from visiting a church saying, wow, I just witnessed the grace of God among those people. But I want you to think about what that may imply and why that is. I think witnessing the grace of God implies transformation. It implies that this is a group of people that had been transformed by the grace of God 
inwardly. Their hearts and their attitudes had been dramatically changed. I want to see some other things implied in Titus chapter 2. Um, kind of an area we'll be settling in some upcoming lessons through the years. We're going through Titus. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14, just to maybe put something more solid on this idea of being able to actually witness the grace of God, which seems like such a intangible thing. How could you see something like that in people? Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. No, it's the grace of God that's instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So I want to summarize 2, 11 through 14, and this idea of seeing the grace of God in this way. It is to witness a Christ-like love characterized by purity, humility, joy, and generosity. A Christ-like love that is characterized by purity, humility, joy, and generosity. So you notice in verse uh, chapter 2, again, of of Titus, uh, verse 14, that the grace of God came to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. To be pure is to be able to, be, uh, to share the values of the gospel, to again be interested in the things that God is interested in, that impacts our way of thinking, what we allow into our hearts, what we meditate on, our humility, how highly we see God, the interest we take in others, our willingness to be involved in others, joy that's based in our hope. You notice in verse, uh, verse 13, That if we're looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, our joy no longer becomes something circumstantial, but based in the fact that we are redeemed and that we are reserved for the hope of eternal life when Jesus comes again. And then generosity. We see that play out at the end of chapter 11, but the application of God's grace is fundamentally generosity among believers. So what did uh, Barnabas witness when he witnessed the grace of God? He witnessed a Christ-like love that was characterized by purity, humility, joy, and generosity. And although purity can seem like an ambiguous thing, it is noticeable when somebody is really striving to live in purity. It affects their words, what comes out of their mouth, what they find humorous. Humility is evident in somebody being willing to take greater interest in others, especially when there's not some clear commonality between them. It's clear in someone's joy when they're able to have joy that's not just because things are going well and things are convenient or comfortable. And it's very obvious when somebody is living in a way where they are striving to be generous with their time and their resources. So these are things that Barnabas could have witnessed that we can witness among God's people. Um, One more thing as I look back, as I squint at my notes. Uh, Something that would have been implied about the church in Antioch with the people who are there, that these were a people focused on obedience. When we obey the Lord, it confronts us with our faults and our weaknesses, our inadequacies. We're never in need. uh, We we are never more in need for an emphasis on grace than when we are striving to serve the Lord in obedience. It's grace, again, that motivates 
the context of our obedience. It sustains the suffering involved in our obedience, and it brings us greater hope and joy through those struggles that are unique to our obedience. This was a church that was being obedient, but they weren't emphasizing obedience so strongly that grace was left behind in the process. Again, obedience puts us in a place of need for an emphasis on grace. The church can grow because there is both obedience among the members and grace involved in seeing God and seeing what he's providing through those struggles. The disciples were focused on evangelism. This is something you see emphasized again and again in the text as well. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and I think supporting them providentially, granting them opportunities, strengthening their zeal, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The end of verse 24, and considerable numbers, this is when Barnabas got there, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And this is on top of what was said in verse 21. And then at the end of verse uh, 26, for an entire year they met with the church, and this would be when Saul now had arrived, and they taught considerable numbers. And I think Barnabas saw a need for evangelism and more teachers to such a degree that Saul was sought after in a totally different place, not only because the Christians in Antioch needed teaching, but because there was a need for more teachers to reach out to the community. A sign of a healthy church is an emphasis on the Lord, proper emphasis on grace, and a proper emphasis and application of evangelism. And I want you to think about this in terms of this being what a healthy church can accomplish. If you are sick or you are unwell, are you as able to do things that require hard work and labor? Evangelism is a messy business. Uh, evangelism requires sacrifices of time and energy and even resources. Evangelize, evangelism, you know, and evangelism meaning reaching out to others, teaching others who are not Christian. Evangelism requires more than teaching. It requires everybody doing their part, even if that means not every person is involved in sitting down with someone and having Bible studies with them. It demands a great deal of patience with everyone involved, it demands love, a love that is sacrificial, proactive, takes initiative, being willing to welcome others in ways that are not comfortable. And it involves a great deal of hospitality, being willing to connect with people in personal ways, being willing to have people in your homes to make more connections with people. Evangelism is a messy business. A church that is not healthy cannot properly uh, participate in the work of evangelism. And I want you to think about this. How important was evangelism to Jesus? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It's important that we encourage each other, that we have very strong, rooted relationships with each other that we are striving to build. But if we focus so heavily on inward encouragement that we forget about the condition of our community, Something has gone very wrong in the culture of the church here. Now, with all that said, that's not to say that everybody has the time and the ability to go out and teach and have Bible studies with people. That's just, you know, that's not the reality. But what I pray for continuously is that God would send more workers to Savannah who can go out in the community and teach more people. And I think more and more often about 
inviting other evangelists here to come and teach here. I think there's a need for teaching here in the church, but there is just such a crushing need for the hundreds of thousands of people that exist in Savannah for people to be reached by the gospel. Um, the practicality of that is not something I understand. I think that would involve a lot of challenges, but I'm just saying that crosses my mind, and that's something that is in my prayers um, as I perceive the enormity of the community in Savannah with how few of us there are who are here. Um, so what I would say practically about the focus on evangelism, pray about it. Interests, ambitions, values, they change through prayer. How can we be a church that is more effective in evangelism? It starts with prayer. And you can pray for God's hand to be with us in evangelism, even raising your kids and putting all of your time into your kids, going to work and being tired with your job through the week. You know, whatever you're doing, you still have the ability to pray for evangelism. And I would ask you as well, uh, pray for me at evangelism. Um, Paul to the churches would often ask for prayers that God would open doors and give him wisdom. And I struggle a lot with, you know, people I'm studying with, should I stop this study? Is this not effective anymore? Should I look for other people? How can I look for more studies, more people I can meet? Um, I want to teach people. I want to use my time to teach people. At the very least, please pray for me that God would help me um, meet people and be bold with how to teach. The disciples were focused also on giving their resources for the relief of the needs of other saints. We see that especially in 27 through 30. It's, it's implied in the fact that the grace of God was something that could be witnessed, that Barnabas would witness a very evident degree of generosity in the relationships that existed in the church. But in 27 through 30, we get a very specific uh, narrative of a very generous uh, participation very generously in giving to the needs of Christians in Jerusalem. Um, since it's been a bit, I'll read this section again and, and talk more about it after reading it again, 27 through 30. Now at that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the region of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it, uh, in, charge, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Uh, notice at the end of chapter 12, verse 25, it's, it's the very last verse of chapter 12, uh, Barnabas and Saul finish doing this particular work. So 12.25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled uh, their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark, and then verse 1 of chapter 13, they're obviously, they're back in Antioch. Uh, it seems like this happened multiple times as in 1 Corinthians 16, um, it seems like Corinth was being encouraged to also give to the need in Jerusalem, and in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it seems like that also is the emphasis of the giving there as well. There's some points to make from this. Um, so obviously they were being very generous, right? They were giving to needy Christians in Jerusalem, a completely different place in the world, very, very far away. And they would have been giving up their resources very zealously to contribute to the brethren they've probably never met before and giving to them. And you imagine how humbling it would be that Jewish Christians would be receiving help, needful help, from Gentile Christians in Antioch, far away. How encouraging and unifying uh, that could be. So what was this for? Who is this for? 
If you look at uh, verse 29, this would be money that was collected specifically for the relief of brethren living in Judea. Every time we see giving in terms of a local church pooling money together, having a local collection, it is always spoken of as it's used for the needs of the saints. What that implies is when we're dealing with our congregational collection, it is never used for social activities. It's never used to give to organizations of any kind or schools or whatever else. Or those, and this is hard for many, it's also never used for those who are not brethren. It is consistently and exclusively used for Christians who are in need. So this money was used specifically for the relief of brethren living in Judea. Kind of an example of this, uh, there's a brother in Indiana where uh, Eva and John's parents are who's gone to Africa multiple times. And at, at one point in his traveling to Africa, he was aware of some brethren who literally were starving. They literally were going to die because of lack of food, and they couldn't get food to prevent that. So they were starving. They were going to die. He took money with him uh, to go and help with that need that was sent by the church in, in Indiana. And when he went, he was very careful. He made sure that when he gave money that was sent with him, that it was given to people who genuinely had need and also people who had been Christians for some time so that there would not be a misunderstanding to people in the community that if you become a Christian, that means free money, free things. So although he was applying this, it was still with caution and wisdom to make sure it was truly being given for the need of the saints and also not giving the wrong impression about what that money really is to be used for. Um, so again, the money was given to the needs of saints, not for social events or anything like that. And you notice how they raised this money as well in verse 29. Something else consistent with this is how money is commanded to a local church to be raised. Were they to raise money by having a bake sale, community event, fundraiser in the community or selling clothing to the community. This was raised directly from Christians, a part of Antioch and only in that church. And they were contributing to this local fund by whatever they had the ability to provide. Raised from Christians individually for Christians individually. Uh, so that's both what they were giving to and also how they gave. And how they gave is not just how they raised the money. Again, it was raised from individuals according to whatever ability they had. It was to given directly to the need. Something that we see in the world uh, very commonly is churches may send money to one church and kind of pool that money together. So three churches, for example, send their money to like the mother church. And then the mother church is going to then take that money and the mother church will then send that money to the need. That's not how the giving happened here either. Consistently in the Bible, local churches, when they send money somewhere else, it's people from that church giving directly to the need where they're going. Not giving the money to someone else somewhere else to then give that money to someone else somewhere else 
but always it's the people who are a part of that church taking those funds, going directly to the need, and distributing to the needs, and then returning back where they came from. So again, you notice verse 25, Barnabas and Saul were sent, Barnabas and Saul returned, and they returned back to the church in Antioch. So what's the point of this beyond just, you know, how they did it, what it was for? With the idea that local church collections were consistently for people, we ought to be most zealous to use the local church's money to contribute to needs of people. Um, This can be challenging to try to figure out, well, what constitutes a need? What kind of need can we give to? And, And I'm talking about if someone is in financial need. I'm not talking about paying someone for preaching. I mean a situation like this where a person or a people are in need. It's important for us to think about what do we really see as a need? Is it only a need if somebody's bank account is at zero? They're no longer able to live in their apartment or house anymore. They've been kicked out. And all of their relatives also can contribute nothing anymore. And now that they're pretty much going to die tomorrow, now that's a need and we can give from the local collection. Obviously, through my tone and how I'm saying that, I think that's fairly ridiculous. But I do think there's some freedom to determine, well, what is a need? Is it a need if someone's going to die tomorrow? Is it a need if someone has lost their job and they're looking for a job, they want to work, but they're facing financial hardship along the way? Is that a need? Um, If somebody gets into a car accident and they have hospital bills or no car and they have some time between jobs or going back to work and they're, again, it's important for us to think about what is a need. Because Christians in the New Testament, when they gave to the collection, it was always with purpose. This is for people. Um, And one last thing. This is just something I've wrestled with, something I commend to you, and it's all open for conversation. I believe that using the money for the building is completely warranted. You know, upkeep of the building, renewing the building, adding things to the building, Bible class material. But I think we have to be really careful. When we do spend money on the building, sometimes large amounts of money on the building, which is, again, I think is biblically warranted. It's, it's a need for us to have a building to meet in. All that's warranted. And without a second thought, spend money on the building. But then when someone is in need to say, well, let's hold on a second. Let's really try to, you know, are they really in need? And we can end up being so strict about what a need is that no one is ever in need. And nobody ever gets any help from the collection, um, even when their life is in severe hardship. So I just commend that to you, that those are important things, I believe, we need to think about and really wrestle with, that the money is for people, as good as it is to spend money on the building, as biblical and warranted as that is, if we're zealous for the building, we ought to be more zealous then uh, to give the money where biblically we see it going, and that's toward needy saints. So that's the lesson for this morning. Um, Again, I hope you've been challenged and encouraged by seeing the example of the church in Antioch, not just obviously that they were very generous monetarily, to others who even were far away, but that inwardly, these were Christians who were devoted to the Lord and encouraging each other, building each other up, and reaching out to the lost in their community. May God help us emulate and imitate the example of these brethren. If there's anything we can do for you here this morning related to your relationship with God, if it needs to be restored, if you need encouragement, if you need to confess sin and ask help from the brethren here, Now is the time we reserve for those things to be made known as we stand and sing.